The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably all of you at one time or another have heard um, a near-death experience story. You may have heard of experiences of death and someone who seemed to come back to life. Matter of fact, there's a movie out right now. Heaven is real. Maybe some of you have seen it. But I encountered a story this year that was unusual among all those stories. It was a story of a funeral home in Lexington, Mississippi. The funeral home was named Porter and Sons Funeral Home. And those who were to do the embalming on bodies were doing their work. They turned to a body bag with a body in it to begin the embalming process. And as they turned, the bag kicked. They opened it and there was a man alive in the bag kicking, trying to get out. His name was Walter Williams. He actually was a farmer who had a heart problem. When they asked what in the world happened, the coroner said, it's got to be a miracle. Because the coroner was present when the family called that Walter had passed away and he found no pulse and he pronounced him dead and he was sent to the funeral home. The only thing they can figure is that Walter had a pacemaker. And the pacemaker stopped 
during the heart attack briefly and then started back again. And he was basically in a comatose kind of state with his heart beating and then he woke up. Can you imagine being Walter? Huh? Waking up in the body bag? Let me out of here. I'm alive. When his family was notified, of course, they were shocked. Uh, they returned Walter to his home and they, um, <laughs> they reported his family did that he was happy to be alive. Um, no kidding. Welcome back, Walter. The thing about Walter and everyone else is that inevitably you will die. And actually, later this year, Walter did die. And they buried him. Like every one of us, if Christ does not first return, will die, they will bury us. And it will be final. The resurrection... The story of Christ coming back from death, it might seem like a resuscitation story. I mean, a miraculous resuscitation story. A person who actually died as Jesus did and then was raised. And all that's true, but it's not the full story. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is profoundly more than a man being raised, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being raised. The resurrection story is that by the power of God, Christ was raised because in his body, through death, he defeated death. And in defeating death, he was raised to life eternal. And in defeating death, he imparts resurrection life to all who follow him. That's way different than somebody just coming back from the dead. And there's more to this resurrection. The power of the resurrection is the stamp of God that says... All things, including the creation that groans under the weight of death and sin, will be restored because of Jesus Christ. So when you think of the resurrection, as I've been thinking all week, what comes to mind? What came to mind to me this week was promises. Promises of Easter. Promises of the resurrection. Just three I mentioned. The first promise of the resurrection, the first promise of Easter is this. Death is not final. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? There's no sting, there's no death in Jesus Christ. Death has been canceled. But wait. I mentioned earlier that it's inevitable as it is. Consider for a moment your life as a book. The last chapter in your book, the last chapter in everyone's book, will be titled Death. But something changed with Jesus Christ. For those who trust Christ, the last chapter in the book, though it seems final, is not. The last chapter in the book is the introduction to a new book, the book of eternal life. Because the dead will be raised. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be raised on the last day. 
living in an eternal body forever. Death is in Jesus became the doorway to eternal life. That is the most amazing news I've ever heard. I've heard some good news in my life, but nothing compares to that. Why? Because death is your enemy, my enemy, all of humanity's final, last enemy is death. And our greatest, last enemy has been conquered by Jesus Christ through resurrection. First promise of Easter, death is not final. Second promise of Easter, evil cannot and will not win. Look around you. You see evil everywhere. Look in your world. Evil seems to snuff out life. Look at the news. The news seems to be overwhelmingly negative because of evil and sin in the world. And Jesus Christ in the resurrection says that evil will not win. It might seem inevitable that evil will snuff out life, but it will not. It will not win because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ever-present evil that's all around us is easy to identify. But you realize, don't you, that it's not just out there. It's in here. The evil and the sin that we see around us, the evil and the sin that oppresses others is the evil and the sin that's in our hearts, that turns us against others, that creates in us self-destructive habits, that destroy us. There is evil within, and that evil too will not win because of Jesus Christ. No matter what your struggle with sin, sin will not win when you are in Christ because he's pronounced death to it. On any given day, it may seem that evil is winning, but it's not. As a matter of fact, the evil within is is not just about you, is it? The evil without is not just oppressive to you. The evil within, it has a tendency to be infectious. Or, let's put it another way, you and I just have a tendency to spread sin. I read a humor story this week about a guy who visited the doctor. And the doctor diagnosed him as having rabies. The man, when he heard the diagnosis, his eyes got wide, his face was flush, and he pulled out a piece of paper and a pen and started writing. And the doctor thought to himself, must be he's putting his life in order, writing his last will. He said, I I needed to interrupt him, so I did. And I said, sir, you, you know that rabies is curable, right? It's not deadly. He looked up at the doctor and he said, yeah, I know. I was just making a list of names of people I want to bite. <laughs> I mean, the point, <laughs> the point is this. Sin is like that. You don't just keep it to yourself. It's not just outside your world. You spread it like an infectious disease. You spread cynicism. You spread anger. You spread bitterness. Sin is like that. But Jesus says, because of my resurrection, it's over. The book of Revelation is an amazing book, a confusing book, images that are bizarre, a plot line that's difficult to trace, and lots of people who do prophecy think they've got it figured out. That's the best sign they don't. But let me summarize for you very simply the book of Revelation. 
This is what it's about. Jesus says, sin, evil, will not win. In the end, I will put an end to it. In the end, Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit. It will be over. The great enmity between sin and humanity will be at an end because I said so through my resurrection. The promise of Easter, death is not final. The promise of Easter, sin and evil will not win. The promise of Easter, the third, I love this promise. Because Christ came in the flesh, because Christ has been raised, you and I can truly, really know God. We've been in a series at ECC this whole year about rediscovering Jesus. Did you ever notice how personal this rediscovery process is? Did you ever notice how Jesus is constantly inviting people to follow Him? How Jesus is constantly saying to people, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to experience God, follow me. If you want to see God, live with me. He put it really succinctly on one occasion. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Just follow me to know God. A few weeks ago, we looked at the high priestly prayer. And one way to summarize the high priestly prayer is Jesus saying to his followers, I want you to be one with me and one with each other so that you can be one with God the way I am one with God. The way you are one with God, Jesus. Yes, the way I am one with God. I want you to have that personal relationship with the God of creation. I want him to be your intimate heavenly Father. And it happens through me. You want to know what God is like, says Jesus. Look at me. I love the images of Jesus. And I especially love what happened at his death and resurrection. Jesus was immersed in a Jewish culture. The temple trappings were all around him. He'd been there many times. And on the day of his death, a dramatic thing happened. A gigantic veil, a curtain that was thick, some people say as much as a foot thick, ripped from the top to the bottom as no man could rip it when Christ died, symbolizing access, intimate access to God. The curtain was the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. The veil that separated the people from intimacy with God. The veil that symbolized the sin that separates you. And Jesus said, it's over! The curtain is shorn. You can have intimate access with me. You can have intimate access with God. What an incredible story. You know, there's a problem with our knowledge of God, isn't there? Well, more than one. There's a lot of problems with our knowledge of God because we take our own images and try to figure out what God is like. We have our own interpretations, some of them so heavily culturally labeled. And as a matter of fact, we Americans are no different. Um, you know who the real American hero is in American literature? 
he could be summarized by the figure of the cowboy. Really. I mean, John Wayne was a famous actor, not because he was so good. All you got to do is look at those movies. He was a famous actor because he stepped into a role. And that role was the lone cowboy. Max Lucado has a wonderful way with words. And um, he wrote about the cowboy and the possibility that it might be our image of God. Now, if you're a cowboy, you might take a little bit of offense at this point. But I want to tell you, Max Lucado is a pastor in Texas. So if he can write it, I can read it. Here you are. Behold a hero of the West, he says, the cowboy. He rears his horse to a stop on the rim of the canyon. He shifts his weight in the saddle, weary from the cattle trail. One finger pushes up his hat on his head and reveals a sun-leathered face. A thousand head of cattle pass behind him. A thousand miles of trail lay before him. A thousand women who would love to hold him, but none will. None will. He lives to drive cattle. He drives cattle to live. He's honest in poker. He's quick with a gun. Hard riding, slow talking. His best friend is his horse. And his strength is his true grit. He needs no one. He's a cowboy. The American hero. Behold, a Bible hero. The shepherd. On the surface, he appears similar to the cowboy. He too is rugged. He sleeps with the jackals that howl and works where the wolves prowl. Never off duty, always alert like the cowboy. He makes his roof, the stars, and the pasture his home. But that's where the similarity is in, you see. The shepherd loves his sheep. It isn't that the cowboy doesn't appreciate the cow. It's just that he doesn't know the animal. He doesn't even want to. Have you ever seen a picture of a cowboy caressing a cow? (laughs) Have you ever seen a shepherd caring for a sheep? Why the difference? Simple, he says. The cowboy leads the cow to slaughter. The shepherd leads the sheep to be shorn. The cowboy wants the meat of the cow. The shepherd wants the wool from the sheep. So they treat their animals differently. The cowboy drives the cattle. The shepherd leads the sheep. A herd has a dozen cowboys. A flock has only one shepherd. The cowboy wrestles, brands, herds, and ropes. The shepherd leads, guides, feeds, and anoints. The cowboy knows the name of the trail hands he travels with. The shepherd, he calls each sheep by name. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't call himself the good cowboy? (laughs) But you know, some people perceive him that way. A hard-faced, square-jawed ranch hand from heaven who drives his church against its will to places it doesn't want to go. But that image is just wrong. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. 
The shepherd knows the sheep by name. He lays down his life for them. The shepherd who protects, provides, and possesses his sheep. The Bible's full of those images. And Christ called himself the good shepherd. There's your image of God. By the way, all the promises that I just mentioned and the others that I haven't mentioned, they're not automatic. People don't automatically rise from the dead. Sin is not automatically defeated. Evil is not automatically vanquished. And people don't just automatically know God. You have the deep desire to know Him, but you don't have the ability to know Him. That's why when you hear a story of the Good Shepherd, you've got a decision to make. It really is always about a decision with these promises. Will you follow the Good Shepherd who calls you? Everybody's story is different. I love hearing people's stories, especially when I prepare them for baptism. Some people's stories of their decision just have all kinds of peaks and valleys and almost seems gradual that they came to that place. Other people's stories are rather dramatic. It's just all of a sudden, through a huge amount of resistance, they gave up and surrendered. But each person's story has a decision in it. I remember mine. As this part were yesterday, July 17th, 1977. A young man who really had no reason for rebellion. It lived in a loving Christian home that demonstrated Christ's love to him every day said no, held a hand up to God, refused to accept the good shepherd. And then one day, by the grace of God, Jesus, the good shepherd, just sheared the curtain, broke down the wall, opened the door. And it must have been for the 1,000th time that this young man heard his invitation. But this time, I said yes. And life changed forever. That's the promise at the end of the three promises of Easter. Jesus says, if you invite me in, I'll give you everything I promised. Question is, Do you know the Good Shepherd? Have you opened up your heart to Him? Have you invited Him in? I can't think of a better time. If I could have orchestrated my life in retrospect, I would have said yes to the Good Shepherd on Easter. What a day to do it, huh? What a day to say, Jesus, I want You to be my Lord. It could be Your day. If you haven't, please do it today. By the way, 
every single Sunday we're here and throughout the week, nothing gives us more joy as members of this ministry team at ECC than to lead people to Jesus. And if you don't know him and you want to know him, talk to us. We're here. You can call. We'll explain it to you. We'll give you the path of life. And you can accept Jesus. Perhaps today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for um, the stories of Scripture. They're so remarkable. Some of those stories are, are apocalyptic and they're mysterious. Like the book of Revelation. But the point is clear. Evil will not win and you will triumph over sin and death. Some of those stories, like the stories of the beginning, are in themselves laden with mystery. And not so many details as we'd like, but but the story is clear. At the beginning, humanity was separated from God because of sin. And you promised in that story to redeem humanity through a human being the seed of the woman that we now call Christ. We thank you, Lord, for those rich stories of grace. And most especially, we thank you for that personal story, which is your invitation to us to receive you. And we pray, Lord, that today another chapter will be written in someone's book, someone's life. They will pause maybe right now as we pray and say, Jesus, I want you as my Lord. I surrender to you. I follow. And life will change forever because of the resurrection. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.